and Peacemakers. I'm Mattia Dorsafat here with Sarah Jamshidi. Welcome to Peace Minded Me, a podcast featuring peaceful bridge makers. There are a few changes that we've made to our show. Later next week, we will fill you in with the details. For today, we are discussing a topic that I'm very passionate about, and I'm sure many of you feel the same, which is women's rights, but specifically women's rights in the Gulf region. For many of you who don't know, in these countries such as Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, or Bahrain, women live under the guardianship system, which means that the men control the majority, if not all of the important decision-making for the women in their lives. We are talking to one young Muslim author who has first-hand experience living in this stifling system. We're talking to Yusra Samir Imran. She is the author of the young adult novel, Hijab and Red Lipstick. It's a semi-autobiography based on her experiences growing up between London and the Gulf region. She has been a freelance journalist for over 10 years and works full-time in marketing in the education sector. She is passionate about gender justice, disability awareness, women's rights in the Middle East, and women in Islam. Her latest book, Hijab and Red Lipstick, is the book that we'll be discussing today. Yes, now, I would like to know what inspired you to write the book. So I've been very open about the fact that hijab and red lipstick, as you said, is a semi-autobiography. So I've packaged it as a, as a novel or a story, but um, it's actually based on my experiences as well as my friends um, growing up under the guardianship system in the Gulf. And basically what happened was Born and brought up in London, lived there until I was 14. And then when my father got a job in Qatar and in the Arabian Gulf, we all moved out there. Soon after moving out there, um, I noticed a big shift in family dynamics between how our family life was in London and now how family life was now in, in Qatar and the Gulf. And also, I think a lot of that was to do with the a very specific um, faith community of Egyptians that my father and family were mixing with in Qatar and that fortunately had a negative effect on the family and uh, I lived out there for 15 years um, unfortunately went through some very difficult and traumatic experiences as did my sister and I think through the darkest times um, I made a promise to myself that you know when I get out of this situation because it was my it was my goal you know, to always my goal to become independent, become, you know, financially independent and be able, be able to make my own life decisions. And when that I when I achieved that, that I would write my story and put it out there. And um, after years of being told um, that no one would believe me or being silenced. Um, and that's exactly what happened. I eventually, at the age of 26, moved out from home. And then a few years after that, made the decision to return to the UK and after I moved back, I finally had the opportunity to sit down, put pen to paper and write my story. And, and that's what we have today. We have hijab and red lipstick. Right. You mentioned that it's the guardianship system, that it was a really big issue there. Can you explain a little bit how that system works in these countries and how parents take advantage of that? Definitely. So as we mentioned earlier, in the Gulf um, region, most of the countries there operate under a system called the guardianship system. So within the legal framework, you'll actually find it written, you know, it's there by law, that as a married woman, you are required by law to obey your husband. And as an unmarried woman, you're required by law to obey your father. So if you don't do that, you're going against the law. 
and the way that the countries operate there, whether you are, say, in Qatar, whether you're a local Qatari woman, or if, like me, you are a foreigner but, but residing there and residing with your parents, that you are always seen in the eyes of the law as a minor, as a child, and you are required to have explicit written permission, um, letters of no objection from your male guardian, so that would be your father, or if your father is not around, your brother, even if it's your younger brother, he can be your guardian, and they have to give you permission for all major life decisions, like permission to go to university, to drive, to work, and in some cases even, even for access to healthcare. And that was the experience that I was going through, which was where male family members were able to sort of use use this abuse, misuse you know the legal system and say, if you don't behave according to how I want, I will not give you permission to do X, Y, and Z. So it's definitely a system that allows men to misuse their power. Of course, yeah. I mean, it's really uh, mind-boggling that a young boy can control maybe his like 40-year-old single sister, uh, unmarried sister, yeah. I know this topic, I mean, this book has a lot of controversial topics. Um, just besi- aside from those controversial topics, I mean, just talking about Muslim issues, let's say, can create a lot of backlash within the Muslim community. People saying that, you know, why are you airing the dirty laundry or talking about these issues and we should keep it, you know, within ourselves and not talk about anything. I mean, were you expecting backlash and how did you uh, deal with that? Absolutely. As you said, Mateen, when it comes to our faith community and also our cultural community, so I have I have the sort of double-edged sword of being, you know, a Muslim woman and also being an Arab woman and it working the same between the two communities where talking openly about your life or about experiences or realities is considered um, airing your dirty laundry or bringing shame on the community. And I was absolutely prepared for there to be some backlash. I knew that from day one. At the time when my book came out, we were we were in the midst of the second lockdown in the UK. So we had a virtual online book launch. And I remember one of the questions asked within the launch was, are you expecting there to be some backlash from within your you know, Muslim reading community, and I said, yes, I am, I know, I know there's going to be, and and there was, and that's because I think for Muslim readers in the West who are battling, they have, you know, they have a different battle on their hands to, you know, Muslim women in in the Gulf, the Middle East, so here in, in, in the West, you know, we're battling Islamophobia, we're battling Western narratives in the media and on TV and and in the cinema of of what white Western people think Muslim women are going through. So I'm very aware of that and, and that those are, are their concerns. But to them, it's when you write about abuse within within your community or your family and the perpetrator is your father or a male family member, to them, it's you perpetrating Western stereotypes. Mm-hmm. And I think what I always um, now say in reaction to that is, you know, as, as a Muslim reader in the West, if you're born and brought up in the West and this was not your experience, nor was it the experience of people in your circle, you need to think about your own privilege because the reality on the ground in the Middle East, especially in the Gulf, is very different for many women, even until today. When until today, this is our reality, our lived reality, where yes, our male family members restrict our movements uh, and do not allow us to make our life decisions. It's still a reality. And, you know, just because it's not your experience doesn't mean it's not the experience of, of others. And I think that's that's really important that we have to hold a space for all stories and all narratives. 
we can't always have negative stories, but we also can't always have positive stories. And I was very open from the start that this is a book that grapples with very uncomfortable and dark, um, you know, issues and incidents within the community. Right. No, that's true. And you, the protagonist Sarah in the story, she, because she's dealt with so many uh, really tough situations and the trauma, she suffers naturally from panic attacks. And uh, I just want to know the issue of mental health. Uh, is that something that is a stigma in the Middle East or even in the in Muslim community outside? And this taboo topic, how can it be dealt with in, uh, in these countries or the West? So yes, as you said, in the Muslim communities across the world, not just in the Middle East, there there has always been some stigma attached to mental health issues and talking openly about, you know, your mental health problems. You know, our elders always come back and tell us, oh, well, if you're depressed or anxious, you know, you don't have enough faith or trust in God, you need to worship harder, which um, is not the correct answer at least in the Middle East, yes, until now there is still some stigma attached to being open about, you know, having mental health issues. I think definitely when I was um, living out there, if you were open as a woman about having mental health issues, I think even as even as a man, if you were open about your mental health issues, that would be something that could prevent you from, from getting a good marriage partner. I remember this being a conversation that my friends and I had many times in Qatar. But you know, when I lived there between 2003 and 2018, there weren't many services like counselling or psychology for, for people. But I'm happy to hear from my contacts in Qatar that in the last three years, um, things are changing, that, and that they have now a hotline that you can call if, you know, having a panic attack or, you know, you're, you're in a bad place mentally, and that they're now bringing in counselling and therapy and psychologists. So it makes me feel positive that things are uh, you know, taking a good turn when it comes to mental health in the Middle East. That's great. With social media as well, uh, there are lots of things that are being done with influencers sort of dealing with this issue and talking more openly about it. So that's good to hear. Speaking up about their mental health issues and their experiences. And um, like you said, there's been a stigma within the Muslim community, and that's worldwide, where if, if you talk openly about being depressed or being anxious, you're told that, oh, your faith in God is not strong enough, you know, you need to worship harder. I think what else is needed in order to fully remove like this taboo or stigma around being open about mental health is to have our community leaders, so our imams and our sheikhs and our community centre leaders also to talk openly, you know, when you have your Friday prayer congregation, you have, you know, the Friday speech or when you meet together as a community that, our leaders are also very open about um, talking about mental health issues and about tackling it. Yeah, that's true, true. Obviously, people who have influence in the community, definitely the imams. Uh, in social media, it could be the influencers with young children or these impressionable younger adults, but for older people, imams are definitely a, a great source. What has been the reaction of your family members uh, specifically to the publication of your book, how they deal with it? So understandably, there was a mixed reaction, given that they knew that the book was based on a lot of truths and perhaps reopening painful and difficult memories from the past. But I think ultimately they came around and understood sort of the greater purpose behind it and, and the idea that for so many years, both I and many other women who have also spoken to me and shared similar experiences, we've been told for so long that, you know, it's shameful for us to talk about what 
um, you know, the things that we've been through and that no one's going to believe us. And I know that you're making the community look bad. But I think that that viewpoint, especially, you know, at least within my family, that sort of shifted now where they see that it is really important as like a, as an Arab woman to speak openly about, to be able to speak and write your truths, even if you're tackling difficult and sometimes quite dark issues within the community, because otherwise it's never going to get better. And, and unfortunately, I think it, it's, you know, writers and people like me that have to sort of take the the brunt of, of the, like the initial attack from, from within the community for like coming out and like, in their eyes, you're exposing, you're exposing shameful parts and secrets, you know, things that happen behind closed doors. But it's only when we start having these open conversations that we can move forward and sort of stop this sort of trickling of violence and abuse and toxicity from trickling from generation to generation. Like it needs to stop somewhere. Right. That's true. Some people have to do a really tough job of bringing these out into the open and you're one of those. So it's really commendable what you're doing. And sometimes it can become really isolating and difficult and it's really courageous thing that you've done. I'm wondering if you, if you were to do anything different or about the book, if you were to write it any different way, what could that be? If you could just go back in time and write section differently or what would that be? I think for me, it, the thing that I've sort of grappled with a lot was the whole, you know, situation in which I would have really loved to have written an actual memoir, like an actual nonfiction memoir, because there's still so much that I have to tell and there's so much I feel that readers could resonate with and benefit from, but certain implications have stopped me so far from, from doing so. Um, perhaps one day in the future that may be possible. Obviously with Hijab and Red Lipstick, it's a young adult novel. It's primarily aged at readers between like 16 and 30, although I, I tried to write it in a way that adults could read it as well. And I think one thing that a few readers from the Muslim community perhaps did not pick up on was that the book is written through the eyes of the protagonist when she's a teenager and very young woman. So when you're writing like a YA novel and you're, and you know, you're putting, you're sort of putting yourself back into the shoes of, of, you know, being a teenager, the thoughts and the perceptions of Sarah, the protagonist are of a woman that is a teenager and very young adult, 20, 21 years old. So sometimes the actions that she takes, the things that, you know, the thoughts that she have are not always, you know, not always particularly correct. They don't always go in line with the religion. And that's fine. It doesn't mean that then that directly reflects on me personally as an author. And I feel like some readers didn't get that, that it's a YA book written through the eyes of a teenager. It's not me as an author. And I've seen this actually with a few other books as well, where, where a few readers have not understood that the perceptions and actions of a character are not those of the author. Right. Yeah, I mean, it happens in movies as well, right? Sometimes they can separate the character in the movie from the, from the actor. The actor yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Right. But that means it's been well written or well played out. So that means that you can sort of feel an affinity with the, with the writer. I think another question I have is, I know that we talk about that there are no resources for victims in these countries, really, where this is starting out now. But what about in general security? I mean, it, I know that women are driven everywhere and they're really overprotected sort of helicopter uh, protection of women. But 
would a woman really feel unsafe if they are out in public, trying to walk about in public? I know that doesn't really happen, but is there security general for women in those regions? It's quite interesting. So Gulf countries, well, at least in the case of like Qatar, the UAE and Bahrain, sort of have a reputation for being like some of the safest countries on the planet. And definitely, I would say that having lived there and now living in the UK, that there were times where I did, I actually felt safer walking on the streets as a young woman in the Gulf than I do back here in the UK. It's just that the perceptions in the Gulf are different. It's not socially accepted or really understood why a young woman would be walking about in 50 degree weather in the heat in the Gulf. And the problem with that then is what, that you do get predatory men, men that are out there to, to harass or, or perhaps even kidnap women who take who see that and take advantage of that. Right. And there have been a lot of um, cases recently in the region. It's not becoming, you know, it's not becoming uh, a rare in- instance anymore where men are going as so far as to actually kidnap women. Um, and there's been cases of murder recently, if you've seen in the news in Kuwait as well. Yeah. So definitely things are not as safe there as they used to be in the past. Well, that's unfortunate. Uh, so we are just going to go for a little on track and break and come back again with the questioning. We'll check you out, Yusra. So welcome again to Peace Mindedly, our podcast show featuring some of the finest peaceful bridge makers in the world. Today we are live streaming on YouTube. Find us at Peace Talk with Sarah, that's the name of the channel. And do check us out on our other podcast channels, uh, Google Play, iTunes, and iHeartRadio, just to name a few. And if you do miss a podcast, please uh, visit goldtune.com, that's G-O-L-T-U-N-E, where you can access this podcast as well as our previous ones. Goldtune is a peace journalism news magazine, so make sure to visit Goldtune and also sign up for our weekly newsletter. Back to this hour, we are talking with Yusra Imran, a British-Egyptian journalist and author of young adult novel Hijab and Red Lipstick. Currently, uh, Yusra lives in the United Kingdom. Yusra also publishes an online newsletter called Ape, which means shame in Arabic or fault. We'll, ha- we'll ask Yusra to explain more. In her newsletter, she discusses a variety of interesting and relevant topics, such as anger, spiritual abuse, mental health, and the shame of not wanting children. She is here to discuss her semi-autobiographical work and talk to us about her take on women's rights in the Middle East. Her book, Hijab and Red Lipstick, was published in 2020. The book is available on goldtune.com and many other online and independent bookshops. So we're bringing back Yusra. Can you uh, talk to us about spiritual abuse? It's something that I know that you have mentioned and talked about, and I know it's close to your heart. Can you talk a bit about that? So um, spiritual abuse is where you have a figurehead perhaps within your own family so someone of prominent standing within your family and usually in many of um you know at least in the muslim community the figurehead of our families is usually the father or if our father is not alive the older brother or the grandfather and then within the community um you know our prominent leaders within the community will be imams and sheikhs so it's when these figureheads within the family and within the community sort of abuse their their position, abuse their power, and then go about sort of cherry picking, picking pieces and bits and pieces 
from the divine texts and from, from their patriarchal interpretation of, of the religion to then justify abuse. And that's abuse of both, it could be abuse of boys, girls, men and women, all genders, um, psychological, sexual, physical, verbal and emotional abuse. And they try to use the faith to justify that. And this is this is something that is currently happening and, and sort of being talked about recently within the Muslim community, but it's it's not specific though to the Muslim community. This is something that happens within all faith communities. Yes. And it's not only sexual, I mean, it's not sexual abuse. A lot of it can just be mental abuse, right? Definitely we've seen that in the Catholic Church has been dealing with this for a long time. So I'm really interested about the choice of the word ape that you have chosen for your newsletter. Can you tell us a little bit about that? I wanted to write a newsletter because I feel like sometimes you know, obviously, as a journalist, first of all, a lot of the pieces that I write um, in my work as a freelance journalist, they are objective pieces. So they're pieces where I don't put my opinion in unless I'm writing a personal essay or, or an op-ed. And then when I'm writing an opinion piece or a personal essay, of course, and that's going for publication, it goes through like editing and, you know, you don't, you can't really like, you can't always put exactly what you think. Whereas with a newsletter, you know, you're able, you have that freedom to write exactly what you think and to share whatever experiences you want. And then obviously when, when you have people subscribe to your newsletter, you know that they've subscribed because they actually want to read and they enjoy your work. So um, that's why I decided to come up with a newsletter that I put out every two weeks. And I chose the word Reib, which as you said, it has two meanings. I think not just in Arabic, I think you also have it in Farsi and in Urdu. Well, it does mean floor, but um, more commonly in the Arabic language, we use it colloquially, meaning shame. So like as a kid, if you do something that's considered to be, you know, inappropriate, your parent will come and tell you, don't do that, that's haib. Mm -hmm. And I think I chose that just to be sort of really out there mm -hmm. and, and to sort of say that, look, just because I'm like this hijab wearing Muslim woman and, and writer, it doesn't, you know, you, you don't need to make certain assumptions about me. And there are topics that I want to write about openly and frankly, and I, I'm just not interested anymore as a fully grown adult woman in my community telling me for everything. Right, that's true. I mean, yes, it's true it's in Persian language as well. And I know growing up, our private areas were called a as something that is faulty, you know, and that's the name that young girls learn to make, to call it. And uh, so, yes, all these taboo uh, breaking is uh, really something that's really needed and it's long time coming. What are some of the, some examples of traditionally shameful topics for an Arab or a Muslim woman to talk about? So, as you mentioned earlier, writing or saying that perhaps you don't want children after all, that sort of you know, in our community, that's unheard of. Writing about things like, you know, as we talked about earlier, mental health, uh, rape, sexual harassment, talking about sex. Sex is a very big and taboo subject within our faith community and our cultural communities. And actually recently, um, I actually wrote a, a short story. Uh, I guess you can classify it as erotica. Um, and it's just been published in, a, in an anthology called We Wrote in Symbols, which collects the work of over 75 Arab female writers 
writing and, and celebrating love, lust, and erotica. So that that was really that was really fun. And again, just breaking this idea that as a Muslim woman, I can't talk or write openly about love, lust, and sex. That's amazing. I mean, I would love to read that. Sounds really interesting. And again, something that needs to be talked about because Muslim women are women after all. And you talk about the concept of aid is something that conditions and controls women throughout their lives. What do you mean about that? So as we, as we were just mentioning, you know, like it's a word that we used to hear all the time as children. And I think as girls within Arab families or Arab societies, you hear it a lot more as a girl than you do as a, as a boy. So been told off a lot more than my brothers have and been told Arab a lot more than they have for things which, you know, things that I may have said or done, which weren't able for, the, for my brothers to have said or done. And as you said, as you grow up and you keep hearing this word, you know, it sticks in your brain, you become conditioned and you feel even as an adult that you're constantly monitoring how you behave, how you dress, how you talk. It was looking over your shoulder because you always, you know, you feel that you need the approval or validation of your of your community. And um, I think I've reached a point now, now that I'm in my early 30s, where I'm trying to break free from that, where I don't want the approval or validation of my community or for them to monitor how I talk, behave, what I write about, and, and what I speak about. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of a conditioning tool for mostly girls, saying that something is shameful or, or faulty to talk about. I saw a button, I mean, this is sort of unrelated, it's just for my interest. What is Buy Me Coffee, K-O-F-I, on the newsletter? Oh, so if you've noticed now, a lot of like freelance writers and journalists, when they're um, putting out newsletters, so like newsletters are now like the new blog. Yeah. So like 10 years ago, everybody had a blog. I remember even I had a blog 10 years ago. Yeah. And I think now that we're so busy now with, with work and our families and with social media, we have like a, I think we have a shorter attention span. So maybe 10 years ago, we would sit for like an hour looking through someone's blog, whereas now we just want to read something fast, something that we can finish within two or three minutes. So I think that's the appeal of newsletters. So you'll see in many newsletters that, um, you know, writers, we write them for free. We don't ask for like a subscription fee or anything like that, but that there's this this little platform called Kofi, where for the equivalent of a coffee, you donate about like $2. And that's just a little something, a little tip for the writer to say you enjoy the work. Oh, that's smart. Okay, I get it. <laughs> so I just want to talk about it a little bit about the writing process now itself. So what advice do you have for, let's say, young Muslim women or just Muslim women who want to talk about, who have something on their heart and they want to talk about some controversial topic? Uh, they want, you know, they have a book idea, an article idea, and it's really taboo and controversial. What would you tell them to, you know, encourage them? I would say... It, it can be scary, it can, you know, provoke anxiety, but don't be hesitant, go for it. We need, we need more Muslim female authors out there. Don't feel that you are constricted to one type of narrative. If you're writing a book, whether it's your story or whether it's a, a piece of fiction that's based on certain realities, if this rings true to, true to you, don't don't worry about what other people in the community might think or say. You know, write what is most authentic to yourself. I feel like if, if you don't and you hold back from that, that you, you know, one day you might regret it. So absolutely go for it, you know, write that book. 
Um, I think there's a lot more opportunities now opening up for, publica for publication um, by, you know, for diverse writers and diverse authors. So now is definitely the time as a Muslim female writer to, to write your book. Just as I said, um, I, I know it's scary. I know that our community still does a lot of policing and you need to be a bit, you need to prepare yourself a bit for that. But if you're writing your truth and, what, and something that's authentic to yourself, then you've got nothing to worry about. There's, you know, there's nothing that you need to be defensive or defend yourself about. I think uh, the other thing that they might be worried about, again, is the publishing process, just the logistics of it. So I know you got published, but it's not always easy to get published and to get noticed out there. Um, do you have any advice to tell them about just getting, finding a publishing house to publish it versus self-publishing? Because I know a lot of people will eventually have to do that. So nowadays, you've got more options than, than authors or writers did had, say, like 20 or 30 years ago. You can go through the traditional route of trying to find a literary agent. And there are many free resources online that list agencies within your country. So depending on whether you're in the United States or the United Kingdom or elsewhere, you can approach a literary agent. You, you're not supposed you don't pay an agent. Um, for for the work they you know if you do manage to get yourself an agent and a publishing deal they will then take a cut of that later and the idea of an agent is that they try and get you the best deal with a publishing company as possible so that's one route another route is to go directly to a small independent publisher like I did so when you go to a smaller independent publisher you can often approach them directly without having an agent go in between and then, as you said, Mateen, there's now the option of, of self-publishing, which I guess if you want to get your book out there quicker and you have the capital, you can self-publish. But it's a lot it's a lot more work. So if you go down the traditional route of getting an agent or approaching an independent publisher, you may have to be more patient, may take a few years, you need to keep persevering, but inshallah, you'll get there eventually. Um, so you need to sort of weigh up those two options. I see. Okay. Now those are good tips. And also you are you also are working or we're working marketing. Has that helped you with in marketing your skills to sell or your own book? Um I definitely think so. Um because you know, with my book being published by a smaller independent publisher, obviously they don't have the, you know, the big budgets of the huge publishers to, you know, do loads and loads of adverts, you know, on the metro, on the subway or out on billboards on the on the street like the big publishers do. Although um, my publishing company do an absolutely fantastic job of promoting their books and their authors, but I also had to put in some of my own work through self promotion. So I think I've been quite lucky that I was already working within that field of of journalism and marketing and social media. Because yeah, nowadays unfortunately it is one of those things now as an where as an author, you need to be on Twitter, you need to be on Instagram and make your presence known. Right, I mean, it's a full-time job itself. So if you were just to give another advice for uh, young writers on marketing itself, what would that be, any tips? I think that if you are a writer looking to get published and getting to get looking to get known, Twitter is absolutely essential. Twitter is the platform where everybody in the publishing industry sort of connect. Um, so absolutely get yourself a Twitter account, start following publishing houses and, and, you know, people working within publishing and following other people that are like um, book reviewers and book bloggers and, and, you know, genuinely engage with them. 
and you'll start really forming some actual meaningful online relationships that may come handy in the future. I see. Okay, so Twitter. So, and I think one of our last questions would be, tell us if you have any other books in, uh, in the making or any, any topics of interest that you're writing about. So I did start writing a second novel. Okay, great. I, I think I'm having a trickier time trying to juggle my day job on writing than I did with hijab and red lipstick. Oh. Uh, hijab and red lipstick was easier because, because of the fact that it was semi-autobiography. So right. it's just me sitting and just, you know, vomiting out all of my memories. Right. Whereas with the second novel, this is a complete work of fiction. It's come, you know, completely from my head. So um, I've started it now. Um, I can say that, yes, it's got Muslim main characters. Mm. Um, I guess it would come under the genre of romance. Mm. Um, and, it, and the book is based in the United Kingdom. So I haven't put any pressure on myself to get it written like really quickly. Right. But I do hope, inshallah, the next sort of year to two years, that that will be a project that I can finish and get out there. Fingers crossed. Yes, inshallah, fingers crossed. Thank you so much, Yusra. This hour, we talked to Yusra Imran, author of Hijab and Red Lipstick. The book is available on goldtune.com as well as on Hashtag Press uh, website, on Amazon, Waterstones, and other independent and online bookshops. At the end of every program, we ask our guests to close the program with an anecdote, a prayer, you know, a blurb from their book, or wish, or anything about uh, that concerns peace, compassion, and kindness. So we would like to ask Yusra to go ahead and close our program for us. Thank you so much, Mateen. So this was something I was like thinking about all week. And it might be something that's just really basic and you've read it now everywhere on social media. But I think I'm going to repeat again this idea of being kind to yourself and being kind to others. Kindness is just it's so vital and so essential in the world that we are living in today, especially if you're very like, you know, if you're glued to your phone and you're always on Twitter and Instagram and on social media, you're able to see just how, you know, sometimes it's very overwhelming how many bad things that are happening in the world. But there's also still a lot of good and kind people out there. And I think I just would encourage everybody, including also myself, because sometimes I forget myself as well to to be kind to yourself take care of yourself because if you you know if you don't take care of yourself and, and you neglect yourself then you're not able to take care of others and also just to be kind just to not jump to assumptions or conclusions about people and to take a step back and think about the things that they may possibly be going through and i think in, in that way you know that's how we bring people and communities together is by sharing that kindness it's it's nothing unique or special or new, um, but yeah, I think I'm just re about reiterating that idea of being kind. Well, yes, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. <laughs>